We turn in God's Word tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What I'll seek to do this evening is to summarize the the main sessions uh, that uh, our young people and as leaders were a part of. Um, in addition to that, um, the young people had an opportunity to attend five of the following workshops that were held. And I'd encourage you to talk to them and ask them which one was their favorite and why. Which one made an impact upon their lives. There was a workshop entitled Our Only Comfort. A workshop entitled Conflict. A Redemptive Opportunity. Where is your God when it hurts? How do you read the Bible? What does your selfie say about you? Tulip isn't just a flower. Why John Calvin still matters. Why confessions matter. Evangelism 101. Unapologetically reformed. And then there's one specifically for uh, the men that all the men take. It's entitled Act Like Men. And then another one that all the women and leaders take entitled The Biblical Woman. So uh, those were the workshops that were available to us. Before I read Ephesians chapter 2, let me give you the notes of introduction if you're taking notes. This is the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that is being celebrated this year, hence the front of the shirts. The letters, Roman numerals, M-D-X-V-I-I, are the year 1517. It's a reminder of the fact that in that year, it is when Luther began the Reformation by nailing those theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. So the idea behind the t-shirt and the letters is to call us back to 1517 and the reminder of that which the Reformation stood for. The main focus of that Reformation was on five main points. These are often referred to as the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola being Latin, the English word that we would give to that is the word solo. If you think about it in terms of music, a solo is that when you sing alone. So we refer to these as the five solas, the five alones of the Reformation. It would be interesting if you as the congregation know what they are. So maybe you filled in the blanks and I don't have to. But just in case you didn't know or don't know or don't recall, our young people were certainly reminded of them this week with these. Scripture alone grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It comes out in a summary statement the way these five solas, solos, alones, come together is in this statement that is printed there before you. That scripture alone declares that we are righteous before God by His grace alone because of Christ alone, through faith alone, 
for the glory of God alone. Let's turn then to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll read this evening the first ten verses. Ephesians 2. This was our theme passage for the week. And you were dead in the trespasses in sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's word. May God add his blessing to it. Let's bow Dear Lord, we thank you for these words you have given us this evening. We pray that you will help us to further understand them. We pray that you will be with Pastor Bob as he brings these things to light for us to know better, that we may serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Understand, please, that, first of all, this is a summary of that which we had heard. This is not the entirety of that which we have heard. But under each one of these main points, then, of, of the Reformation of these five solas, I want to draw your attention to to some particular things that were mentioned that uh, deserve perhaps uh, us reflecting upon this evening. First of all, then, we want to look at, uh, after we finish this introduction, is that when we talk about Scripture alone, what we're dealing with is the final authority, the final authority for doctrine and for life. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminded us of the fact that that all Scripture is God-breathed. We were reminded of the fact that that in our creation, in our, our state, we were nothing but earth, we were nothing but dust, until God breathed into man the breath of life. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to pause a minute and I want you to breathe. Just breathe. Do it it a few times. Breathe. Breathing involves two parts, doesn't it? Breathing involves in and out. God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. Why? Because he breathed out. Breath began. Now, some of the leaders might have more to say about this than I care to go into at this moment, but imagine you're dying of a heart attack at the beach. 
and uh, you're laid kind of passed out on the beach and you know you, you call one of the the lifeguards over and the lifeguard comes over and, and begins CPR and you're, you're pretty much out you're pretty much coated you're 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 down and and all the lifeguard is doing is breathing in breathing in breathing in is that life you'd say well no not really Okay, that's part of it. There, there needs to be breath in, but there needs to be breath out as well. See, I think sometimes when we look at that passage from 2 Timothy 3.16, we forget the out. We're pretty good at, at understanding that all Scripture is God-breathed. Yes, He breathed into it. This is God's Word. That's what it is. He breathed into it. It is the infallible Word of God. But do you realize that every time we open this Word, God is breathing out that Word to us? See, it's not only a breathed in Word, it's a breathing out Word. See, we call this, when we refer to Scriptures as the living and active Word of God. It's alive. If it's alive, it's breathing. God breathing in the truth that He placed in it. God breathing out the truth that is there. Just remember that when you open up your Bible for devotions tomorrow morning. God's breathing out to me. Remember that when you're in a Bible study and you open up the Word. God is breathing out to us. Remember when when we open up God's Word here in worship, God is breathing out to us. He already breathed in the truth. Now He's breathing it out. It is the Spirit that is taking that Word and making it living and active in our hearts and lives so that we become living beings. See, spiritually, we are that piece of dirt, aren't we? We are dead in our trespasses and sin until God breathes into us His Holy Spirit. But what happens is that then we breathe out. We live. We live the life that God has called us to. See, and that's, that's part of what's going on in the Reformation is there is a recovery of the understanding of the inspired Word of God. This, this had been collecting dust. That which was thought to be living and active were the edicts of the church, were the declarations of the Pope. These are the living and active things. God's Word, well, that's just kind of cold, closed. The things the Reformation's did is it blew off the dust of God's word and opened it and said, now, listen to the breath of God as it breathes to us. Secondly, then, because this is God's breathed in and out word, this becomes God's clear message of salvation. See, when we say Scripture alone, we don't mean, how do I build a car? Well, Scripture alone will tell me how I build the car. 
Am I supposed to plant my corn east and west or north and south? Scripture alone is my final authority. Now what the Reformation meant by that Scripture alone is in the matter of salvation, in the matter of doctrine, in the matter of Christian living, Scripture alone becomes that authority. It is not a bishop. It is not a church council. It is not the Pope. It is God's authoritative word teaching us alone all that we need to know in terms of salvation. This is where the truth of God's plan of salvation is found. This is where the true life of Christian living is found. This is where the true definition of what good works really are. This is what defines what the Lord's Supper is. This is what defines what a Christian baptism is. This is what defines our only comfort in life and in death. This, and this alone, becomes the sole authority. Now, as we go to Ephesians chapter 2 then, we ask the question, well, what is God's Word telling us in Ephesians chapter 2 is this plan of salvation? How is this salvation of our souls accomplished? You see, this was at the heart and the core of the Reformation. This is what Luther is struggling with, his own salvation. Am I saved? I'm in the church. I'm a monk. I've done all this stuff, and I find no peace for my soul. Am I saved? Well, according to the church, yes, he was. But as he read God's word, no, he wasn't. For what the church and what the word were saying were in contradiction to one another. So the question becomes, do I listen to the word of man or do I listen to the word of God? When it comes to the matter of salvation, do I listen to, to men's? view of salvation, or do I listen to God's? The Reformation stands and says, we listen to the word of God. And what does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? It tells us that we are saved by grace. Several times in the passage that I read, grace comes up. It's the reminder that our salvation is is by grace. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we are certainly in need of it. See, there is the necessity of grace because of man's condition. I want to present to you three views of, of man. Kids will remember the demonstration that was done and they can fill you in, but I'll, I'll try to clue you in. The three views of man are, are these. Once the, there was a man by the name of Pelagius. His view was that mankind is created pure, that was Adam, and sin exists out there in the environment that begins to have some effect upon man. But it's certainly not final it's certainly not a woeful condition. 
It would be, and, and I know the speaker didn't do it, but, but you could go to this illustration. It would be, you, you could take a piece of white copy paper, put a couple of very light spots of pencil on it, and you could say, well, you see, it's not really a big deal because all you got to do is turn the pencil over with the eraser and you, you get rid of those little problems. Pelagius' view is the view of the modern church. You rarely hear sin talked about in the modern church. Perhaps the greatest sin in the modern liberal church is to not take good care of the environment. That would be a that would be a kind of a little larger piece of pencil. But that can be erased. We get well we gotta do is do the right things. We just need to recycle. You know, and, and then that takes care of the problem. We just won't use as much aerosol and so on. And that takes that was kind of Pelagius's view. Sin is out there, it does affect us, but not to any huge degree. The second view of man is the view of semi Pelagianism. It's the view of Jacob Arminius. It's the view that sin really did have an effect, but it's more like this. I'll, I'll just, just imagine this is the white piece of paper. We just crinkle it up and see. That, that, that's our problem with sin, okay? It, it just kind of ruffles us up. And, you know, all we got to do is work to flatten it out and to, you know, it, it's basically, we're, we're doing okay. Kind of Arminius' view. So you have... Pelagian, you have semi-Pelagian, which means they're sort of there, but not fully. But then you have the Reformed view. How do we see man's condition? Well, we would say, we too believe in man's creation in his original state as being pure. But what happened in the fall is not just a crinkling. It's not just some spot put upon Adam, while the vast majority of him was kept pretty pure and so on. But the, the view of the Reformed faith is that man is depraved. Think instead of taking this piece of paper and lighting it on fire, collecting the ashes, and then looking at the ashes and say, now, what good is this? What can we do with this? Dead. Ash in our trespasses and sin. It is the reformed view of man that turns grace into grace. In the liberal church, you can sing about grace. In an Arminian church, you can sing about grace. But it's truly only in a reformed church that you can sing about amazing grace. Because what's so amazing about grace if it just takes a pencil to erase? What's so amazing about grace if you just have to straighten out a few crinkles? But what's truly amazing about what grace truly is is that which is dead becomes alive. We become new creatures. That's grace. That's grace. 
grace, for it is grace, it is by grace that you have been saved. The kindness of God's grace. See, and we'll never understand the love of God until we understand the grace of God, but we never understand the grace of God until we understand our absolute need of that grace. That we understand that in terms of salvation, what God says in His Word is this, I do it all. There is nothing that I leave to you. I cannot leave it to you. For if any part of your salvation is left to you, you will fail. You will fall short. You will always be empty. You will never achieve that which is there. Think of David in this morning's message. Compared to the right standard of God's righteous law, can we ever achieve that? No, we're always going to fall short. Always. There is the absolute necessity of grace. And that's what God says. That's what God declares in the, in the breathed out word. God says to us, he speaks to us and says, your salvation is wholly dependent upon grace. That's what God in his providences allowed the Reformation to do. Recover grace. I asked my sunrise group, that's the other side of the spectrum we meet with. Uh, I, I would meet with men from various churches early in the morning and we'd talk. And, and the question I raised to them is, after, after hearing uh, Reverend Marcusy speak on faith, the question I raised to them is, so where would we be without Luther? Think about that one. If God had not raised up Luther, if God doesn't raise up Luther, God doesn't raise up Calvin and Huss and Knox and so on, if God doesn't raise up these men for this Reformation, where are we? Well, seeing most of us are from the Netherlands, our ancestors, you know where we'd be? We'd be out worshiping an oak tree somewhere. It is by grace you have been saved. And if by some means we had been been incorporated and baptized into the Catholic Church, I want you to consider, my friends, where the Catholic Church was at the time of Luther and Calvin. Do you suppose that the Catholic Church would have gone forward or backward if there was no Luther? See, this is one to think about as well. The Catholic Church that we see today is influenced by the Reformation. They literally were on the highway to hell. In every respect. So here you are, you're either the worshiper of the great oak on the highway to hell, or you're practicing a religion that is so full of satanic ritual that you also are on the highway to hell. God, in His grace, in His providences, gave us a reformation so that we could recover from His Word. 
truth. You're saved. Not by the great oak. Not by penance. Not by ritual. Saved. God's act of grace. God does everything for our salvation. I'm just burned up ash. Dead. But God, but God, Ephesians 2 tells us, acts, acts by grace. So the statement is that Scripture alone declares that we are righteous before God by His grace alone, because of Christ alone. How is it that God declares us righteous? Well, He does so by grace. What does He do about our sin? By Christ alone. We were reminded from Colossians chapter 1, the passage that I read this morning at the table of the supremacy of Christ. Not only is he supreme in creation as the creator, not only is he supreme in terms of the resurrection as being the firstborn of the dead, but let's look at that passage once again. So just flip over to Colossians chapter 1. And just, just reflect, just, just think about God breathing out now these words of truth in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, once again, Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His, that is, Christ's cross. So God acts by grace to save, but Christ becomes the means by which that grace becomes active. Without Christ, there is no grace. Grace, God can dispense grace. God can freely give His grace only because of Christ. If there is no Christ, if there is no sacrifice, if there is no blood shed upon that cross, there is no grace. I'm saved by grace because of the work of Christ. He and He alone. See, that's what Colossians, that's what Paul is is pointing to here. That's why this is the supremacy of Christ. This is Christ and Christ alone. It is by His sacrifice on that cross that grace is possible. God can't just look the other way at our sinfulness. That would be a contradiction of Himself. That would be a contradiction of His holiness. It would be a contradiction of His being. So the price has to be paid. God dispenses grace, and he can do so because of the reconciling work of Christ upon the cross. 
our speaker pointed out the fact of the necessity of that and the need for that, but then drew us back as well to the fact that he is as well the firstborn of the dead. As I have referred to as well in sermons past, what a dreadful, what a dreadful religion that ends with a dead Savior. The hopelessness, the despair of the age. See, that's why there's no peace in Luther's heart. Because there is no Christ living in Luther's religion. There's nothing but a dead Christ who gets crucified daily. Every single day. Let's kill him again. Let's kill him again. Let's kill him again. Hopelessness and despair. The Reformation opened up the realities of who Christ truly is. That he not only is the one who is supreme in creation, he is also the one who is the firstborn of that resurrection. He is living. He is alive. And he is reconciling men by his blood. supremacy of Christ. Fifthly, there is the instrument of faith. See, Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of that as well, doesn't it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should For Calvin, the other matters in regards to which we have spoken were were essential and important to Calvin as well. But for Calvin, the hinge of of the Reformation is faith. What role does faith play in the salvation of men? See, he's up against, you see, a, a, a religion that teaches nothing but works. Yeah, Christ made it possible. But if you want to finish the job, if you really want the job completed, then you have to get in motion. You have to finish the work of salvation. Calvin listens to the breathed out word of God here in Ephesians 2. And what we come to is the understanding that faith indeed is the tool that Christ uses to give life to our soul. Sometimes we refer to the the fact that, and, and I did in the point, that it's the instrument. Instrument means tool. Instrument means means. Like a, as, as uh, Reverend Marcus, he said, the, like the paintbrush in the hand of an artist. It's the tool. It's the means. Okay? It, it's, it, it's, not, it's not the bigger thing itself. It's not like the paintbrush paints the picture. It is the artist who uses the paintbrush to paint the picture. Our salvation is by Christ who uses our faith. But it's Christ. It's Christ. Because you see, the faith is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2. 
The faith is not ours to claim. The faith, the faith isn't us. The faith isn't that which we have come to. The faith is that which Christ has given to us through his spirit. Reverend Marcusy mentioned then that there are, there are three things, three elements. Usually we only speak of two, but there are actually three elements to faith. Faith is, is, involves content. Faith involves confession. Faith involves commitment. Often, you know, as, as even he was struggling, there, there's a hard, it's hard to illustrate this in, in ways that completely make sense with all the rest of Scripture. All human illustrations at some point fall apart. But let me at least give you an attempt from the experience of this past week. One individual amongst our group has never ridden a roller coaster in their life. Be the foggiest thing in their mind. Farthest thing in their mind, probably foggiest too. Before us was presented a roller coaster that eh, did some loopity loops and your feet went one direction before your head. You know, you could know all the facts about that roller coaster, couldn't you? You could say, I know how fast it takes off. I know the velocity at which it spins. I know all the information, all the safety procedures. I know everything about it. That doesn't mean you're going to ride it. Though. You might even say, I know everything there is to know about this roller coaster, and I've watched this roller coaster, and it seems to be a very safe ride. In fact, it is a very safe ride. I observe with my own eyes that no one is hurt on this ride. We don't call an ambulance every time the thing runs. We could even say, I would be willing to ride that roller coaster. We could make that statement. You know, it's quite another thing to make the commitment to get in the seat, to pull down the bar, to see the floor disappear below you, and to realize you're in for the ride. Now you're committed. See, oftentimes faith, yes, it is knowledge. It, it is knowing things about God. It's knowing things about his word. It's even being willing to confess those things, to stand and make statements. You know, we, it, to a certain extent, we could say, we, we, we do that, with, for example, when we stand and recite the Apostles' Creed. We, we make a confession, and probably for most people, they believe that confession. They accept that. That, that is true. The third aspect of faith is commitment. It's being willing. Faith is God's gift. Faith. Knowledge is a gift of God, yes, but not in the sense of faith. Many people have knowledge of God. Many people have an awareness Many people know probably more facts about the Bible and than, than sometimes we as Christians do to our shame. There are many people who make a confession. Probably most of the people in, in the Catholic Church of Luther and Calvin's day would say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. 
weren't willing to truly make that commitment. A commitment that says, I'm yours. Body, soul, Take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Take it all. Take my sorrows, my joys. Take my will and make it thine. Take my silver, take my gold. It's nice to know some facts, and it's nice to stand and make a confession. But true faith, faith that is the gift of God, faith that Christ gives as the tool, as the instrument of salvation. It's a faith that not only knows, it's a faith that also confesses and a faith that is willing to commit and go along for the ride. Fully given to Jesus Christ. That's what the Reformation brought back. And all, you see, all for the glory of God. So that whatever I do, whatever I seek to accomplish, whatever I could sing, whatever I could play, whatever I could paint, whatever I can read, whatever I can know, whatever I can speak, whatever I occupy myself with, all for the glory of God. Whatever occupation I choose, all for the glory of God. See, it was Calvin who said that the street sweeper of Geneva is able to give as much glory to God as the minister of the church. And understand this street sweeper of Calvin's day isn't riding in a machine. He's got a little broom and he's picking up horse manure. For the glory of God! Catholic Church knew none of that. You see, that concept that all that we do for the glory of God changed the world. God allowed the Reformation not only to bring about a Reformation of religion, it brought about a Reformation of education. It brought about a Reformation of social work. It brought about a reformation in medicine. It brought about a reformation in politics. It brought about a reformation in the industrial world. It brought about a reformation in agriculture. Because, you see, Christianity is not about this hour in church. Christianity is about all for the glory of God.
Father, thank you. Thank you. What marvelous, blessed, spirit-filled, scripture-honoring, messages we were pleased to hear. Lord, this this is but a summary, but I hope that that in conveying these truths tonight that the congregation and that each of us has been reminded of these glorious truths. They are precious. Lord, we owe it all to you. Oh, I know we talk about the men, but it's really you. You are the one who moved You are the one who worked in men's hearts. You are the one who brought about that reformation. You are the one who drew us again to your word, to grace, to Christ, to faith, so that we might live for all eternity for your glory. In Christ's name, God's people say again, Amen.